the title of the message is The Preaching of Jesus. And let us look together at the preaching of Jesus this morning in our text, Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to follow along on the scriptures that are provided for us on the screens this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to give you a copy free of charge. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then someone said, Isn't this... Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He continued to say, Truly I I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, when they heard these things, everyone in the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he got away. Well, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, he quickly gets to work doing what he came to do. And what is it that Jesus came to do? He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hear me very carefully this morning. Preaching was the centerpiece of his entire ministry. There was a lot of things that Jesus did, but the centerpiece of his ministry was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Consider what the other gospel records have to say even about this distinct moment in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark says something very similar in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Now Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Of course, here in Luke's gospel, Luke gives us the same focus in Jesus' ministry. 
Because right there in verses 14 and 15, it says that in the power of the Spirit, uh, Jesus went teaching in their synagogues. In fact, at the very end of chapter 4, notice what Jesus says about his own ministry. You're there at the beginning of it. You may only have to flip one page. You may not have to flip a page at all. But find, if you will, verse 43. I want you to see what Jesus says here in Luke 4, 43 about his own ministry. He said unto them, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for what purpose? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to recognize today that Jesus was indeed a healer. He was a miracle worker. But above all, he was a preacher. And a study of his preaching throughout the Gospels would show us that his preaching had a great deal of endearing characteristics. His preaching was lively. It was authoritative. It was well organized. His preaching was practical. It was interesting. It was clear. It was truthful. In contrast, however, many pulpits today are filled with quite the opposite of preaching. Preaching that is dull, unauthoritative, disorganized impractical, uninteresting, unclear, and sadly, marginally true. It's it's of my opinion when you study the life of Jesus, especially his teaching and preaching ministry, that the church would be better served if preachers would sit at the homiletical feet of Jesus and learn the manner in which he preached the gospel. Because it was the purpose for which he came the purpose of his earthly ministry. And we see it here in our text. In fact, our text brings us to Jesus' hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. Now, this wasn't his first stop of ministry. Verses 14 and 15 make that clear to us. It tells us that after his temptation, he immediately went all over Galilee preaching in the various synagogues. For whatever reason, Luke chooses not to include the details of that season of ministry other than the fact that Jesus was preaching all over the place. He was preaching all over Galilee. And so verses 14 and 15, all it is, it's a summary. It's a summary that his ministry was off to a successful Start. In fact, look, look at it there in verses 14 and 15. It tells us that not only was the Spirit of God upon him, and not only was he going all over Galilee preaching the gospel, but he was being glorified by all, okay? So coming out of his baptism, out of his temptation, he launches this preaching ministry all over Galilee, and it is extremely successful. People are glorifying him. They're listening to his message. They're believing, perhaps, even, that he indeed is the Messiah. So I bring that to our attention because Nazareth is not his first stop. He did not leave the temptation wilderness and go directly to Nazareth. He's already, perhaps uh, some theologians have called this his springtime ministry. That during the spring season of the year, he was in various places of Galilee, already preaching, already going into the synagogues, already having success. And we find out even in our passage that that success and ministry had been spreading even back to his hometown of Nazareth where they heard all the things that Jesus was doing. It's not his first stop, but it is. It is a monumental stop. And so Luke doesn't give us the details of his springtime ministry, but he does choose to give us the details of what happened in Nazareth. 
And it's those details to which I draw your attention this morning. Three things I want you to see as we kind of outline and break down this passage. Number one, notice with me, first of all, the custom. The custom. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now notice this. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, the synagogue was the meeting place, all right? This is the gathering place, the place where Jews would come together on the Sabbath day for worship and teaching. In fact, I've always found it extremely interesting that in the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, where we are commanded as Christians not to neglect meeting together, all right? Remember that command? Don't neglect meeting together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That phrase, meet together, in the English translation, is the exact same Greek word that is used here in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It's, it's, it's the Greek word episunagogon. Episunagogon. And it should sound familiar to you. Episunagogon. Episunagogon. Synagogue, all right? So what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing here is that we need to come together in that designated place for that designated worship. That's what the synagogue was to Jewish life. It was the designated place, the designated building, if you will, that the people met together for prayer, worship, and teaching. And all the towns had them. Those of you who've went with us to Israel, you know that's one of the first uh, key monumental marks we see as we go into one of these old biblical towns. There's the synagogue. It's the centerpiece of everything that's happening in that town. It was the place, the building, the designated spot where everybody came together to teach, to preach, to worship, to learn, to fellowship. Now, this building that you and I are gathered in this morning this is the designated place, at least for this point in our church's life. This is the designated place where you and I, as members of this congregation, meet together every week for prayer and worship and teaching. And on this particular Sabbath day, Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue. Because it was his custom to go to church, to go to the meeting place, to go to the designated building on the Sabbath day. This was his custom. This was his routine. This was the hallmark of his spiritual life. And the point that I'm trying to make that we have made so many times before regarding the pattern that Jesus sets for us is that he routinely gathered with others to worship in the designated place on the designated day every week. He went to the synagogue. He went to the meeting place. And so we ought to follow that same pattern in our own lives. If it was Jesus' custom to go to church, it ought to be our custom to go to church. In fact, I, I ask you sincerely, not to harp, but to sincerely cause you to think. I don't know what you're thinking. Pastor, why are you talking to us? We're here. Now yeah, there's some watching. Just bear with me. How can a person truly follow Jesus if they routinely avoid what Jesus routinely attended? How is that even possible? To truly follow Jesus if we routinely avoid what Jesus routinely intended? I tell you the answer to that. It's not really possible. So let it be simply noted once again because it's here in our text and for the purpose of our sanctification together that the call to follow Christ involves a call to belong to and meet together routinely with 
his people, the church. They say, Pastor, there's a lot of bad things that go on in churches today. There are. That's why I'm so thankful for this place. But let me tell you a little secret, and you can study it out for yourselves in the light of the own, uh, your own church history venture. The synagogues were far worse than any church that exists today, and Jesus still went. It was his custom. And so that's why he's here. He's here on the Sabbath day walking into the designated place for worship. All right, that's the first point. Here's the second point. The sermon. The sermon. So Jesus goes into the meeting place, the synagogue, on the Sabbath day. Now, the typical synagogue order of worship would involve very much similar features that we have in our own worship services. It would involve the singing of psalms, the recitation of scripture, and a sermon. Now, it is very likely that prior to the beginning of this particular service that the lead officer of the synagogue would have Uh, went to Jesus and asked him uh, to give the sermon. Remember, news had been spreading about him throughout all the region, and he was was no stranger to Nazareth. This is is the hometown kid. Uh, They wanted to hear from him too. Everybody else is getting to hear from him. Uh, We want to hear from him too. After all, he wears our letter jacket. He's from here, and uh, if anybody ought to hear him, we ought to hear him. And so I I can imagine the place is packed, right? It's packed. Uh, News has been spreading about what Jesus has done over the last couple of months. And uh, this is the hometown boy. Uh, They're they're packed that Sunday morning, actually Saturday morning. And they're gathered in the synagogue together. Now this section is fascinating to me because it reads like a drama, at least from my perspective. If we were capturing this in cinematography, then then the picture would would, would slow down. The camera would begin to zoom in on Jesus and the dramatic music in the background would begin to play. And it all begins in verse 16. Just kind of follow the drama with me for a moment. He stood up. The scroll of Isaiah was, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He he found the place where he wanted to read and he read it. He then rolled the scroll back up. He gave it back to the attendant. And what does he do next? He sits down. And it was almost like this moment. Quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Because verse 20 tells us that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're leaning in, waiting for him to speak. You could hear a pin drop. What's he going to say? Now, the scripture that Jesus read was from Isaiah 61. We read it in our opening scripture reading just a moment ago as Austin was leading us. Now, now, now imagine, if you will, how Jesus even unrolled this scroll to find this particular place of scripture. Isaiah 61. He didn't have an app like some of you are using this morning where you just open it up, hit Isaiah, hit the chapter number, find the verse, and you're there before most of us are. Nor did the, did the scrolls include uh, chapter and verse divisions like we've been uh, so privileged to have over the last several centuries. Now, this is just paragraphs of Scripture, paragraphs of Scripture. And Jesus knew exactly where to stop. He knew his Bible so well that he's just unscrolling. He knows exactly where he's going. And the text in which he stops is a prophecy about Israel's coming Messiah. What the Messiah will do when he comes. 
And that's where Jesus stops and begins to read. And he reads it. Verse 18 is just him reading it. Look at it. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now we know Jesus to be the Christ. And the title Christ comes from this word that is translated anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Christ is the anointed one. The anointed one is the Christ. So so again, this section of verses is about the Christ. It's about the Messiah. And what is it that the Christ has been anointed to do? Well, first and foremost, he has been anointed to preach. And that's the word proclaim that is used in verses 18 and 19. Three times the word is used. Verse 18, he's anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news, to preach liberty. Verse 19, to preach the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission of the Messiah. To preach the good news, the good news of the kingdom of God. By the way, his mission is our mission. The Spirit of God, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, has empowered Christians to go out and preach and to proclaim the gospel of God. What is my purpose on earth? Why am I here? What's my mission? All of our purposes is the same. All of us have the same message. We may, we may earn paychecks a different way. Our cultural context may be different, but through those different sovereign choices that God has brought about in our lives, they all are for the same purpose, and the purpose is to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You work where you work to glorify God. You have the children that you have to glorify God. You live where you live to glorify God. Our mission is his mission, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I think these verses need to be understood in its right interpretation. And that is, first and foremost, what the Messiah is dealing with here What the Christ will come to do is to meet spiritual needs. Spiritual needs. Again, consider it there. Please, look look, look there in your Bibles. Isaiah says here that the Messiah is going to come to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. So so the subjects, the the recipients of the gospel, the good news, are the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. Now, I'll be fully transparent with you. Attempts have been made at using these verses politically to promote various issues of social justice. Uh, People would try to say to us that from these verses, the purpose of the Messiah, the purpose of Christ and subsequently the purpose of the church is to champion causes of social politics regarding the poor, the imprisoned, and the oppressed. But the problem is that this interpretation is often heralded at the expense of the gospel. We bypass the fact that his first and foremost mission was to preach good news, to preach good news, to preach good news. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Christ will physically minister to all of these types of people. And the church ought to physically minister to all of these types of people. However, the primary means... The primary means of setting people free in whatever their social or political circumstance may be is the preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel. In other words, it is only the gospel that can address the social issues of our society. The kingdom of Caesar or Biden or Trump will never be able to completely solve these issues. But the kingdom of God can and the kingdom of God 
will. But we have to understand it through the Messiah's purpose. That first and foremost, his purpose is to meet the spiritual needs of people. And that's what Isaiah is addressing through his prophecy. Spiritual poverty. That good news has come to those who see their spiritual nothingness. They're humble. They realize that they need grace. They know that they need Christ. He doesn't bring good news to people who think they don't need it. He brings it to the poor. Spiritually poor. Spiritual imprisonment. Liberty has come to those who are prisoners of sin who've been locked in the chains of darkness. He's dealing with spiritual poverty, spiritual imprisonment, spiritual darkness. The ability to see has come to those who are blinded by Satan's deception. Think about that in your own life. Perhaps for years in your life, you were so deceived about the things of the gospel. And one day, as John Newton writes in his own testimony, my eyes received sight and I began to see what I never thought I could see about the truth of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. Spiritual darkness, spiritual blindedness. And then, of course, spiritual oppression. That hope has come to those who are broken by life, who are shattered by the circumstances of life. So listen to me very carefully. We tell the poor that they may never receive riches in this life. But to trust Christ is to receive riches and glory they could never imagine. We tell the prisoners that they may never be freed from their earthly sentences. But to trust Christ is to experience freedom even inside of a prison wall. We tell the blind that they may never see with their physical eyes here on earth. But if they trust Christ, they will see things they never thought possible. We tell the oppressed. The circumstances of your life may never change. That abuse, we cannot go back and undo. That, that unpleasantry, we cannot do away. No, no. But to trust Christ is to receive a hope that you will never be able to explain. And then, of course, the last part that Jesus read here, recorded in verse number 19, is that he came, that is the Messiah, came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So again, Isaiah's prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, he will come to preach the gospel, he will meet the spiritual needs of people, and he will preach the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I, I love this, and I don't have time to get into it. You're going to have to do your own homework, as I know you do every week. <laughs> the year of the Lord's favor. It actually has direct correlation to the Jewish year of Jubilee. Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25 is the text that you need to research. You'll find in Leviticus chapter 25 the essence of the Jewish year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Let me give you a little summary of it. It's not a week-long revival. That's not what a Jubilee is. In fact, if a week-long revival was a Jubilee, then you'd understand we're getting ripped off based upon what they do. The year of Jubilee meant that every 50 years, there was a, a year of Jubilee, a unique time in Jewish history. Well, watch this. All debts were canceled. All those college loans forgiven. All the prisoners were set free. All the slaves were released from their oppression. And all the property that had liens on them from other businesses were now relinquished to their rightful owners. It happened every 50 years. And it went on for a whole year. They called it the sabbatical year. A year when all labor ceased. Now, I've learned some of, these, some of these new daddies around here uh, look, paternity, paternity, it's unbelievable what you guys get nowadays. There, there's some men right now get six months of paternity. And I, of paternity, and I want to ask, what in the world did you do? <laughs> well, I know what you did, but you, you don't deserve six months off for that. She deserves it. You don't deserve it. 
But imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment, sorry, uh, one year, one year of no labor. Nobody works for a year. Both the land and the people were at rest. That's why they called it a sabbatical year, a jubilee year. It was a year of the Lord's grace, the year of the Lord's favor upon the people. So look at the spiritual interpretation of this. What he's saying here is that the Messiah wasn't coming to bring social reform. He was coming to give grace, to give grace to sinners, to cancel the debt of all sin, to release us from spiritual bondage, to give rest for all who will believe and follow him. Now, Jesus hasn't said anything yet. I've, I know I've said a lot. Jesus hasn't said anything yet. He's just read it. That's all he's done. He's just read it. But then, he sits down. Now, I used to read this as a young kid thinking, all right, he gets up, he reads the scripture, and he goes back to his seat and sits down, and somebody else just keeps on with the word of the service. No, 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 total misunderstanding. Sitting down in this culture was actually the premier place of teaching authority. I'm standing up because I can't sit still. And most of our lectures in our society and culture are done by people who are standing up and moving around and all this kind of but the, but the Jewish culture, it was a place where you sat. And when you sat down, it's, it's, it's where we get the, uh, the, the college terminology, the, the chair of the mathematics department, the chair, the sitting chair. This is, this is the authority, the authority of the subject. And here's, here's, here's Jesus. He's sitting down in front of the people. He's made himself a place of authority. It's quiet. All cell phones are off. You can hear a pin drop. All the eyes are fixed on him. They're ready to hear what he has to say about what he just read. He has their complete attention. And here's what he said. Verse 21, look at it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Do, do, you, do you understand what Jesus is saying here by that statement? Let's, let's break it down. Today, not in Isaiah's day, but on this very day, what, what Jesus was proclaiming by using the word today is that in prophecy, Someday, someday, Isaiah, everybody who read this, everybody who studied it when Isaiah, someday the Messiah will come and this will happen. Someday this will unfold. Someday it will be fulfilled. Look, someday had become that day. It's a reminder to all of us who hope in the future promises of God that someday will one day become today. Today, he says, this scripture Isaiah's prophecy that God's salvation is going to come through the Messiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, has come true. Has come true. And don't miss the next three words in your hearing. Today, today, this scripture, everything that Isaiah said about the coming of the Messiah, it has come true, and it's come true right now. Before your very eyes. In this one sentence, Jesus proclaims that I am He. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Salvation has arrived in me. I'm the one who Isaiah prophesied about. Today, this has been fulfilled. Right in front of you. And then we see finally their reaction. That reaction. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, Jesus' sermon was a total of nine words. And you said we ought to sit at the homiletical feet of Jesus and learn from him how to preach. Yeah, but that's Jesus. I can't give you what you need in nine words. He can. So don't be pulling that mess on me, all right? 
but what a sermon. The custom, the sermon, thirdly, the reaction. The reaction. Well, the reaction at first seemed to be pleasant. His sermon was a message of grace. A message that, again, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come and cancel the the debt of sin. And because of that message of grace, they were initially captivated by what he said. I mean, look at it there in verse 22. All spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words or the message of grace that was coming from his mouth. And by the way, we understand why. Who in this room doesn't want grace? Who among the Jews had not been praying for the arrival of the Messiah? So sure, it would have been a pleasant, receptive message at the beginning. We've been praying for the Messiah. We want the Christ to come. We want him to meet our spiritual needs. We want a year of jubilee where all of our sin debts are canceled and we don't have to go through the old sacrificial system anymore. We want all of that. This is great. That was the initial action. But then... And there's one in every group, by the way. Then someone spoke up. And they said in verse 22, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Y'all are getting excited over here. But isn't this Joseph's boy? What do y'all mean he's the Christ? He's not the Christ. This is Joseph's son. We know him. He's from Nazareth. He went to grade school with my kids. He played on the baseball team with my son. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's a carpenter's boy. And what happens next in verse 23 is that Jesus reads their minds. They wanted him to prove himself by performing miracles and laying out his agenda for Israel's dominance as a people. After all, It appears that they heard Jesus had done miracles in other places, as we alluded to at the beginning of the sermon. They wanted him to do the exact same miracles too, if indeed he was actually the Christ. In fact, they were refusing to believe unless Jesus did what they wanted him to do. Verse 23, and he said to them, he's reading their minds, he knows exactly what they're thinking, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And by the way, the Jews will one day say that to him. If you really are the Messiah, come down from that cross. Heal yourself. So he's reading their minds. He continues, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That's what they were thinking, right? Okay, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe so-and-so over here has a point. He is Joseph's son, and I remember him growing up. You're right. There's no way he could be the Messiah. Let, let's, let's, let's think how we can, how we can tell him you know, that, that if he really is the Messiah, he needs to prove it to us by doing all these miracles that we've heard him do over in Capernaum. So they're thinking this, and Jesus is reading their minds. And he says, I know what you're thinking. And then he turns to the heart of the matter. Beginning at verse 25, he uses two Old Testament prophets, Proverbs to illustrate uh, the, the, the pride of their own hearts. Not Proverbs. He uses two Old Testament prophets. One was Elijah. You can read about this story in 1 Kings chapter 17. And, and basically what was going on with Elijah at this point is that there was, a, there was a famine in the land and there were many, many starving widows. But Elijah was sent to just one, the widow of Zarephath, who lived in Sidon. When Elijah asked her to do something strange, which was make him some cakes before she uh, was provided food for herself, she trusted him. It was a strange request, maybe on the surface rude, but she, she trusted the prophet. She did exactly what he said to do, and as a result, she received the miracle of food for the entire length of the famine. That's the first illustration that he tells them. And then he goes to Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story here. And he reminds him that there were many lepers in Israel during this time. And one was a man named Naaman. He was a Syrian military commander. And the emphasis of the story is that God sent Elisha to heal Naaman. But his healing was contingent on his willingness to obey a strange request. 
He was to go down to the Jordan and wash himself seven times. We, we sing a song about that too. And he dipped and he dipped and he dipped and he dipped. Right, seven times. Seven times. And if he would do that, he would be cleansed of his leprosy. And guess what? Naaman, even though it was a strange request, even though he couldn't make sense of it all, he trusted Elijah and he did it. And as a result, he was healed of his leprosy. So what in the world is Jesus doing by telling us these two stories? Well, he, he's making a point. The first point is this. Now follow it with me very closely. Elijah and Elisha's ministry was to those who knew themselves to be poor, blind, imprisoned, and impressed. But those in Jesus' hometown did not see themselves as such. Those in the synagogue that day were filled with religious pride and self-sufficiency. They were good, respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented citizens of Nazareth. To see themselves as poor and blind and imprisoned and oppressed was a massive insult to who they believed they were. Essentially, Jesus was saying, look, you're not as spiritual as you think you are. That's the first emphasis of the reason he's telling about Elijah and Elisha. Secondly, in these two illustrations, God had sent Elijah and Elisha not to Jewish people. He sent them to Gentile people. Sidon, where the woman of Zarephath, the widow of Zarephath lived, was a foreign land, a Gentile land. So was Syria. So the application of Jesus' words to his hometown of Nazareth is that God is willing to pass over unrepentant Jews in order to give repentant Gentiles the blessings of God. To Jewish people, this would have been the pinnacle of insult, the pinnacle of infuriation because they view Gentiles as dogs. That's why I call my dog a Gentile. You see, not only did Jesus just tell them they were not as spiritual as they thought they were, but he now tells them that the Christ is a Savior for all nations, not just Israel. That the Jews had to come to faith in him the very same way that all the other nations had to come to faith in him. So Jesus is using these illustrations to clearly tell them that unless they humble themselves and follow his agenda for righteousness and repentance, then they will be passed over and their Messiah will not come to them. These Jews, unfortunately, in Nazareth felt the same way that many religious people, perhaps even in this room, feel. That they, the unclean outsiders... All those people that we read about in the paper and watch on the news that owe all those horrible, disgusting things. They, they need grace, but they don't deserve it. But me, me, I deserve it, but you know, I really don't need it. That was the mindset of Nazareth. Well, the synagogue had heard enough. And I get the feeling you have too, so let's wrap this up. Verse 28 when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I've been there. It would have been quite a scary feat. But think about what they're doing here. Truly, truly, the most loving, winsome, thoughtful, an obedient person they've ever known was now their target of execution. That was their reaction to the truth of Jesus. And isn't it ironic that it is the reaction of so many in this world today? The most loving, thoughtful, winsome, obedient person you could ever know is the target of so many people's execution. But notice verse 30, because I love this. Maybe you're already thinking it. But passing through their midst, he got away. Well, how did that happen? Let me tell you how it happened. It was a miracle. I mean, think about it. If, if, if all of you decided right now you're going to throw me out in the middle of the road, 
I don't know how I would escape you. It would have to be a miracle, right? It would have to be. Now, some of you are thinking about how you might could do this. But, but just, I'm just throwing it out there. If I were to get away, no matter what exits are available to me, it would be a miracle to escape the clutches of your hands. Well, that's exactly what happened. It was a miracle. It was divine protection. And here's why I love this part of the story. Because what did the Nazarenes want to see? What did they want to see? They wanted to see a miracle. Guess what? They got one. Jesus miraculously escaped. I give you three closing reflections and we'll pray. Number one, listen very carefully. It is impossible for you to be neutral about Jesus. It is impossible. Every one of us has one of two reactions to him. Either one, we trust and follow him, or we reject and throw him out of our lives. We cannot be neutral about Jesus. It is time for us to decide in this moment, what are we going to do with the Christ who has come? Are we going to believe him? Are we going to follow him? Are we going to make him the Lord of our lives? Or are we going to continue to reject and cast him out of our lives? There's no medium ground. There's no wavering between two opinions. You can't not think about it. You can't not choose. You must make a decision about Jesus. And regardless of where you're at right now, you've already made a decision. You've already made a decision about Jesus. You can't be neutral about it. You can't be. You're either among those who sit in the synagogue thinking, that's my savior. Or you're among those who say, yeah, I'll give you a hand. Let's kick him out. Here's the second, second thought that I want you to leave, leave today thinking about. Number two, don't rest in your familiarity with Jesus and wake up in eternity realizing you never knew Jesus. Don't rest in your familiarity with Jesus and wake up in eternity realizing I never knew him. I never knew him. I get it. You may know this morning the language of the church. You may know the songs of the church, the meeting times of the church, the the order of the church. You may know the routines of the church, but do you know the Christ of the church? Do you know Jesus? His sermon is, in the Nazareth synagogue was aimed at people who were familiar with him but did not know him. Isn't this Joseph's boy? Yes, it was. But he was more than Joseph's boy. He was God's son. And as the old adage goes, familiarity often breeds contempt. That's why Luke glues us in on his hometown. The people who supposedly knew him best, who were so familiar with him, didn't know him. It should cause every single one of us to pause and reflect in our hearts this morning. Yeah, I grew up in church. I know what all this stuff means. I could tell you everything was going to happen in the order of service day. But, but, you know, do I really know Jesus? And then here's the third thing, and it's sobering. Some rejections are final. I didn't say all, but I said some. As far as we know, in accordance with Scripture, Jesus never returned again to his hometown. He never went back. It's sobering, isn't it? He cries this morning a message of don't reject him. Don't reject him for your next rejection of him may be his final rejection of you. Don't misunderstand how salvation works. You, you, you don't come to him on your terms. 
You don't reject him today and say, you know what, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. In a couple weeks, I'll come to him. No, you come to him when God invites you to come to him. He is inviting you today. He may not invite you tomorrow. The pull of the Holy Spirit may not draw you to himself. It's sobering. It's sobering to think that some rejections are final rejections. Well, if you've studied this prophecy before in conjunction with Jesus' reading of it in Luke 4, you will have noticed something early on, and that is something was missing. Jesus intentionally left something out of his reading. You see, when it comes to Isaiah 61-2, and then in comparison with verse 19 of Luke chapter 4, what Jesus read was this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. But the prophecy doesn't stop there. That's where Jesus stopped. The prophecy goes on further. Let me read it to you directly from Isaiah 61 too. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, God's judgment will one day come. It will one day come. That day's not today. But it will one day come. For now, what Jesus was saying is that this day is a day of opportunity. This day is a day of the Lord's favor. It's a day of grace. It's why we see echoed out throughout the whole Old Testament or Old New Testament. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews says, today, if you hear your hearts, today, today, if you hear him, harden not your hearts. Because the next time Jesus comes, he will not come with favor. Are you listening? The next time he comes, he will not come for a year of the Lord's favor. He will come with the Lord's judgment. In essence, the gospel is this. Bow to him today, live with him tomorrow. Bow to him today, live with him tomorrow. Because when he comes again, there will be no grace. Grace is today. Come while you have an opportunity of grace. Of grace. May God help us. Let's stand together for prayer.